Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever into the ages of all ages. Amen. I really want us to focus on just one phrase of this parable. This is the most uh, preached on, most retold teaching of all of Jesus' teachings and parables. Um, so you may or, have, may or may not have already heard the story and you may have already heard it um, and taught on it in numerous different ways. In summary, a father had two sons. The younger one says to his father, we don't know why. We've, there's lots of thoughts and reasons, maybe why, but we don't know why. He says to his father, give me my portion of what comes to me. Basically, give me my inheritance, which, you know, you receive an inheritance when somebody passes away uh, or, and they want to bestow that inheritance upon you. So it's not something that you ask for, but it's something that you're given, and it's something that you're given when you know, you've lost ties with that person. So the, the situation, you can see right from the start that the situation is reversed. Everything is backwards. The son is asking for the inheritance instead of the father being the one who's writing him into his will. It's happening before the death of the father. Usually the person dies and by their death, they, se they sever the, 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 the bond, at least in this life, with you. But here it's the son who's severing the bond with the father. Basically, in short, everything is backwards, right? So he gives him his portion, which would have been probably about a third of his entire wealth. And there's enormous consequences to that, which we spent all of Holy Week talking about two weeks, uh, two years ago maybe. But in any event, the son goes off to a far country and wastes the money. We don't know what he wastes it on. Later, his older brother is going to accuse him of wasting it on prostitutes and lavish living. But we just know that he wastes the money. And then he's broke, he's hungry, so he joins himself to a citizen of that country and he becomes somebody who's living with the pigs and feeding the pigs. And he wishes that he could eat what the pigs eat. Then he has an aha moment. He says, how many of my father's servants have bread and enough to spare? And here I am, you know, wrestling with pigs over their food. Pigs were an unclean animal, like the lowest thing you could be in all of creation, in Jewish thought, in, in first century Jewish thought, was a pig. Like, so this is like he's sunk, is, the parable is giving us a, the clear message, he's sunk to the lowest possible state. And he says, I will go back to my father, and I will tell him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer to, worthy to be called your son, make me like one of your hired servants. He gets up and he gets going on his way. Who sees him coming afar off? The father. And he runs to him and he hugs him and he kisses him. And there's many implications to that as well. Elderly people in general don't run. Even more so, not only because of their age or their health, but because of their station in life. They are, he is the patriarch of the family. People come to him when they want to speak to him. He doesn't go to them. Right? But the father runs to his son. Again, everything is reversed. Right? 
the, the father to whom, is, to whom be all the honor is forsaking that honor and running to the son. And he throws himself on him and he falls on his neck and he kisses him. We have here that fathers give us the imagery of, 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 the, of the kiss of the father versus the kiss of Judas, another beautiful topic. We'll maybe talk about it some other year, but not this year, right? And he restores him. So many beautiful details, but let's just leave it at that because I want to get to a very specific point. The elder son finds out and he's really upset. He's really upset about all of this. And then the elder son has a conversation with the father and says, I've lived with you all these years and I've worked with you and I've this and I've that. And you never even gave me a goat to celebrate with many of my friends. And the father says to him, and he's refusing to come into the house. The house here is very clearly the place of rejoicing, the place of restoration, the place where he goes back to being a son, the place where he belongs. It's the church, it's the kingdom of heaven, it's paradise, right? But the, the elder son has excluded himself by not wanting association with his brother and then later on with his father. He is excluding himself. No one told the older son, don't come. He, people have this idea that the church has some great joy in anathematizing, excommunicating people. It doesn't. People excommunicate themselves. When someone says, I don't want anything to do with you, they have dissociated themselves from you, not the opposite. In any event, the father goes out to him too. Notice the father goes out to the younger son. The father goes out to the older son. Tells him, your, son, your brother was lost and is found, was dead and is alive. It is right for us to rejoice. And the parable ends there. Something we've never talked about before that caught my eye this year. I can't believe I've never seen this before. I've heard this parable at least a couple of hundred times. I've read it. I don't know how many times. I've read... I've read every commentary I think I could find on this parable, year after year. And I, I can't believe I never noticed this. And it's in the doxology. It's in the doxology for, for raising Vincent's. And it says very clearly that this man, that he joins himself to. He went to a foreign country, so he left his father's house. He left heaven. He left paradise. He cut ties with the Father, who is, you know, God in this, in, in this, in this parable. And he, he, joined, he went to a far country, the world, and he joined himself to somebody there. Why do you think that's so significant? What prevented this young man from repenting sooner? Like, okay, well, what caused him to repent? He had lots of money. He had lots of fun. As long as he had the money, he had the fun and the friends. When he lost the money, he lost the fun, he lost the friends. And then what happened? What, what, what does it say? It says he began to be in want. He, he had lack. He had need. We could say he was hungry, but Scripture left it for us ambiguous to say that he was not only hungry for food, but he... he he was hungry in the larger sense of the word, right? So what did he do? He said, gee, I'm hungry. No one in my father's house is hungry. I should go home. No. He said, let me figure this out. Let me get a job. What? He says, what do hungry people do in this foreign country? I've, not, I've never been to this, this 
country before. I've only been here for a couple of months. What do hungry people in this do, do in, this, in this place? In my place, what they do is they go knock on, on the kitchen door, the cook opens the window, and you say, I'm hungry, and he cooks you a feast. So what do hungry people do in this, in this town? Well, they get a job. That's what they do. Okay, let me go get a job. So he goes and gets a job. But the significant thing is, is that he, the Scripture is very clear. He joins himself to the citizen of that country. And the fathers, I'm not making this stuff up. All the fathers talk about this, but I don't want to be, I only have 10 minutes or 15 minutes, so I don't want to belabor you with, with references. But if you want them, I'll give them to you. Right? He, he joins himself. He's saying, the, the fathers tell us that this is an either representative of, of evil, an evil person, evil influences, Satan or Satan himself. Many of the fathers say Satan. The doxology says that the, 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 the citizen, sorry, it's not the doxology, it's the melody of the, the, melody of the, of, of the commun, uh, that we sing during communion. It says that this citizen was Satan himself. The fathers are divided, but the point is, okay, this wasn't a good guy, right? The fact that he was farming pigs means he, either he wasn't Jewish or he was Jewish and he was doing this for, for Gentiles because Jews had no use for pigs. They don't eat pork. I know, eh? What, what's life without bacon, right? But in any event, right? They don't know what they're missing out on, right? But in any event, right? Like, same thing with Jesus when he casts out the demon and he goes into the pigs. And the, and the pigs go rushing down the hill and they drown in the, in the sea. Why were those people in Galilee farming pigs? What are they going to do with the pigs? A farmer is, 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 is a merchant of sorts, right? Except that he owns and raises his merchandise. That's the difference, you know? He doesn't buy it from a foreign land and come and sell, buy cheap, sell expensive. He, he raises it and sells it, right? So it's, it's commerce, right? So who, who are these farmers farming these pigs for? Well, not Jews or not righteous Jews. And if you come in contact with a pig, you become ceremonially defiled. You cut yourself off from all the, all, all, all the, the, the prayers and the rituals. You cut yourself off from the assembly of God, as it was called. In, you know, the word church is assembly, means assembly of God, right? But in the Old Testament, it was also called the assembly of God. So, so a pig farmer was not... In, in, in a story like this was not, by definition, was not a righteous person. These are very, um, st they're stereotypes, right? They're to make, to make a point clear. But the question I have for you and for me is what's delaying my repentance and yours? You see, if, 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 the, if the son would have gotten hungry sooner, he would have went back sooner. And the reason I'm asking the question is because I'm interested in, in your holiness and mine. And we, we, most of us have a definition of holiness which is, which is an Old Testament definition of holiness, which is, thou shalt not sin. So, you could measure my holiness in a certain negative sense. How many sins have I done in the last day, in the last week, in the last month? Well, that's kind of how holy or unholy I am, you know? And if I do less next week, well, hey, I'm, it looks like I'm progressing in the right direction, okay? Don't break the rules. That's, that's, that's not Christian. That's done. That's finished. That's gone, right? So, so what's holiness now? 
Holiness now is repentance. God knows you're going to sin and He knows I'm going to sin. He knows we're going to turn the world upside down like this, like this young man did. He knows we're going to participate in self-destructive behaviors. He knows that we're, 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 we're going to be, the, the, the liturgical word that we use is deceived by the envy of Satan. He knows. So he's planned, he's accounted for it. He's planned for it. By what? By giving us repentance. By giving us an opportunity to return. So then what's holiness? Holiness is the time it takes you to return for the, you know, you know, engineers, mathematicians, and calculus fans in the audience. You know, holiness could be, you know, limit as TR approaches zero, right? Where TR is, T0 is time of sin, TR is time of repentance, you know? How long does it take you to repent? The person who's in, who is praying ceaselessly, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, the sinner, ceaselessly, is in ceaseless repentance and thus is living in holiness. God isn't expecting you not to sin. He's expecting you to repent. He's calling you to repent and me. Right? But what's slowing down the repentance? Right? There's many different things. But one of them is us satisfying the want, the lack that we have, like this young man, by going and finding another job. By filling, like, I'm hungry. I'm trying to watch what I eat. I'm trying to get healthy. But I come home and I'm hungry. And all there is, is, you know, potato chips and chocolate. Well, what am I going to eat? Whatever is easiest to hand. We do a purge of our, all the potato chips and chocolate at home. And we buy apples, carrots, you know, and, 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 and protein bars. What am I, I'm hungry. What am I going to eat? I could order like McDonald's, Uber Eats, but it's going to get here in 20 minutes. In the meantime, I'm going to have eaten, you know, half a bag of carrots and two apples, right? The problem is, the problem is, is we have found ways to satisfy the need of our souls. And not from holy sources, but from this, from this citizen. St. Paul is very clear to us in 1 Corinthians 15, tells us, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. We find all of these gray things, like we live in a world today which wants to make everything gray, you know, which, sorry, that wasn't English, which wants to make everything gray. It would seem to God it's not very gray. It's black and white. Evil company corrupts good habits, period. This morning, as I was walking out the door, I had ordered a, a book on, on Amazon. It arrived yesterday while I was out, so I picked it up and I was looking at the back of the book, you know. And there was a quote there from the Desert Fathers, in Paradise of the Fathers. And it just blew me away. So elder monk is counseling a younger monk. And he tells him, it says in the Desert Fathers, it says, Do not walk from your cell to the church 
with one who is not walking in the ways of salvation or one who has not received grace for your salvation. For it will take you a year to recover the loss you will lose in that journey. Look at the how sober-minded. You know, we talk a lot about the theme of sobriety. You'll notice our icons, everybody's eyes are open. Everybody's eyes are open. Nobody's sleepy. We, we, we call that sobriety. Not so much in terms of sober and drunk, but awake, alert, eyes on the prize. Eyes on the prize. There's no need, you can say, Father John, if I start thinking that way, I'm going to become very judgmental. I'm going to start judging. You're no good, you're no good, you're not trying, you're not really, you're not trying, you're not, oh, you're not, oh, you, you, you haven't even started fasting Lent, forget you. You're, yeah, right? No, 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 not at all. Do not walk with one to whom the grace has not been given for your salvation. I have to tell you the truth. I am deeply indebted to all of you whom I serve. Because in serving you, you serve me. A grace has been given to you that benefits my salvation. Almost every single person who comes in confession leaves me dying to go and confess myself. You open my eyes to my own sins. You open my eyes to my selfishness, my greed, my judgmentalness. My... Is that not a grace? Is that not a grace? Remember, we have to read these things in context. This father is saying this to this younger monk who, who they live in community, right? So he knows the people who are there. He's had interactions with them. He's not talking about how you deal with perfect strangers, but how you deal with the people that you know that are close to you. Some people are very holy, but God has not appointed them for my salvation. Like, they're very holy, but God has a different plan for them to save somebody else's soul. So, if you don't walk away from an interaction with somebody repentant, if you don't walk away from an interaction with somebody wishing to thank God and to praise Him, maybe God just hasn't appointed that person for your, for your repentance. This is the week of repentance. Let us examine our lives. Let us examine our relationships. Let us ask the question, what is delaying my repentance? And if it is that I have joined myself to someone who is not leading me to the kingdom, then it's time to walk away from that. Glory be to God forever and ever. I have sinned. Forgive me, my fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. Please pray.